areas where we are deficient or, or lacking, places in our lives where we want to improve. And I'm not really talking here about a skill, uh, becoming a better accountant or a better musician or learning a new language or something like that. I'm talking about character issues, right? So selfishness, a tendency to get angry or, or overreact all the time, being overly sensitive to, to criticism, a bitterness about some past event, insecurity, anxiety, greed, lust, how well we treat our peers or coworkers or family. How do we deal with those types of behaviors? Now, many of you, like me, might often try to just, you know, white-knuckle it. Okay, okay, today, as we wake up, today, I am not going to lose my patience with my kids. Today, I am not going to gossip with others at work. Uh, today, I'm going to think of others first. Today, I'm not going to look at pornography. But it tends to fizzle out, doesn't it? We don't seem to have enough in us to, to keep it going, to sustain that, to really change our behaviors. Uh, maybe we can pull off an outward change for a little while, but on the inside, we never really seem to move much. And so what do we do about that? How do we change our behavior? Well, today we're going to look at one place in the Bible, one place among many, that can help. And we're kicking off this series in the book of Titus, where the Apostle Paul is addressing some very specific issues among the churches in Crete. And one of Paul's main goals in writing this letter is to address behavior within the church. How ought a person in the church to act? How ought Christians to behave? And so we'll still see today that, that he doesn't just prescribe behavior, but he actually shows us how to get there. He shows us what's underneath all of it. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Titus. And we're going to start right in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It'll also be up on the screen. Titus 1, verses 1 through 4. So listen carefully with me to what God's word says in Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now, at his appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So whenever we read a letter in the New Testament, an epistle, the fancy word for it, whenever we read a letter in the New Testament, it's really important to remember that they're occasional documents, right? They were written for a reason. Some series of circumstances gave rise to Paul writing this letter. For the same reason you write a letter or send an email today, there's a, there's a reason for it, right? He has a purpose in mind. He didn't just want to sit down and, hey, you know what, let me jot down some theology so some people in the 21st century can listen to a message about it. No, 
he had a specific reason and purpose in mind when he wrote this letter. So as we introduce this series on Titus, and before we get to my question about changing our behavior, I want to look at some background here for this epistle. Now, Paul probably wrote this letter towards the end of his ministry, most likely in the mid-60s A.D. sometime. And he had completed a missionary journey to the island of Crete, which resulted in the establishment of some young churches there. And Paul left Titus there to watch over these young churches. And as he'll say in verse 5 of this chapter, he wants Titus to put in order what was left unfinished. Now, Titus was a close companion of Paul's. Uh, he's mentioned in several other uh, of Paul's letters, 2 Corinthians and Galatians. And so by this time, it's clear Titus has been associated with Paul for quite a while. And we don't know much else about Titus, but we do know that he was a Gentile. Uh, he was not Jewish, and therefore he was not circumcised. And Paul uses Titus as an example in the, in the book of Galatians of how Christians aren't bound by Jewish law. And as a test case to prove and show that he's reaching the Gentiles with the gospel. And if you read through Titus, which I really encourage you to do through these next few weeks, it'll take you about five minutes, so you can read it like 20, 30 times a day just as we go through here. So read through Titus. It's pretty clear that the reason Paul writes this letter, the occasion for it, is that false teaching is starting to infect the churches in Crete. And this is Paul's focus in much of the book. So Paul's writing a letter to a trusted co-worker to offer him instructions and also in imbue him, impart to him his authority to eradicate false teaching in the church and promote sound doctrine. And it's interesting as we think about the, the backdrop of this letter, it's really important and significant that it's meant for the churches in Crete because Crete had a reputation. If you think about today, if I mention Las Vegas to you, certain things come to mind, right? Vegas has a reputation. Well, Crete had a reputation. Many of you know it's this long, narrow island in the Mediterranean Sea, and it was inhabited thousands of years before Paul ever arrived. But numerous authors throughout history indicate that its people, the people of Crete, weren't exactly known for their good behavior. In this letter, in Titus, Paul himself affirms what an earlier philosopher named Epimenides said 600 years earlier. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. First century philosophers like Cicero, Josephus, Polybius, Note how Crete is known for piracy, for robbery, and for looting. It was also known for being fiercely tribal with these intense family loyalties. And so there were all sorts of family wars and vendettas going on all the time. And that reputation actually persists till today. Go to Wikipedia and look at like the culture section for Crete, and it talks about that tribalism that's still part of that, that island and that culture today. And so knowing this background helps explain Paul's letter a little bit because we can infer a little more about his purpose in writing. Right? Crete, an island with a reputation, is going to need good leadership and good teaching because the social milieu in Crete is not very helpful for living out Christian ethics. 
they're not in this wonderful, shiny, happy place where everybody treats each other, each other well and ethically, right? So they need good teaching. And so that's one of the reasons that Paul is so focused here on godly behavior. And if you read the letter, this isn't like advanced Christianity godly behavior. It's like 101 kind of stuff. Like, you know, don't cheat on your wife. Don't get drunk. Don't fight people. That basic kind of stuff that he's talking about as he exhorts the church. So I've set the stage a little bit here, but I want to focus now on what Paul actually says. What does he actually have to say? And I want to propose to you that Paul's main point in this introduction is actually the central point of the whole letter. And it's found in the second half of the first verse. So what is it? Paul says he's an apostle to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. To further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Now, go, don't get hung up on the word elect here. It's just a common way of referring to God's people. But I, what I want you to get hung up on is this. Paul is saying that a person's faith and knowledge of the truth lead to godliness. Okay? And in this letter, and other letters Paul has written, truth is, is really just a stand-in for gospel, the heart of Paul's message, who Jesus is, what he's done through his death and resurrection. And faith in this, knowledge of this truth, Paul says, leads to a godly life. <clears throat> to Paul, the two things are inseparable. He actually uses it as evidence for people that, that they don't have genuine faith or knowledge of God. In verse 16, he says that some people claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. So in other words, they're not living a godly life. Therefore, they must not really know God. And this is no new theme in the Bible, right? Jesus says this in Luke chapter 6. He's talking about a tree and its fruit. Good tree, good fruit. Bad tree, bad fruit. In other words, you can see what's really inside a person by how they act, by the fruit that they bear. This is what James is talking about in his letter when he says that faith without works is dead. If you claim to have faith in the gospel, but you don't act like it, you don't really have faith in the gospel. And this is an essential part of Paul's message, really the whole teaching of the New Testament. And it's the central point in our text and the whole book of Titus. Paul is getting at a fundamental truth here, that we behave like we believe. We behave like we believe. And by believe here, like Paul, I'm referring to both what we believe in faith, in things that we cannot see, and what we know. And not just knowing intellectually either. Uh, when Paul uses the word knowledge here, uh, he's talking about both intellectual knowledge and the kind you get through experience, like gut knowledge, if you want to call it that. Right? I mean, I can go to the dentist and I can read a pamphlet on what it's like to get your wisdom teeth pulled. And I have intellectual knowledge about what it's like to get your wisdom teeth pulled. And then I get my wisdom teeth pulled. And now I know what it's like to get your wisdom teeth pulled, right? That's, that's what Paul's talking about, the whole sum of that. These things, faith, knowledge, and experience, they form our beliefs, our view of the world. And he knows that we behave like we believe. You're going to act consistently with what you truly believe. 
the things we know, both intellectually through experience, the things we have faith in, these are what determine our actions. And this is really obvious, actually, if you think about it. I mean, if you, if you, you're going to act on the things you believe and know. If you drove here today or rode in the car and you wore a seatbelt, you chose to do that because of your beliefs, right? A simple one, but maybe you know it's a law in Massachusetts that you're required to wear a seatbelt. You didn't want to get a ticket. You thought that'd be unpleasant. Maybe you're aware of all the statistics out there that show how seatbelts save lives. Maybe you're just listening to what your mom and dad said and you believe in the trustworthiness of their advice. And whatever the source, they all make up your beliefs about seatbelt wearing and you acted out of those beliefs. You behave like you believe. And this is why we can recognize it when somebody claims to believe one thing and yet they do another. Right? You, you meet somebody who who says they're a, they're a triathlete, fitness nut, with a PhD in oncology, and they're smoking a cigarette. Right? Well, wait a minute. That doesn't exactly add up, does it? Right? You study cancer for a living. You claim that you're a fitness nut. You start to question their credentials a little bit when their actions don't align with what they say to believe. And so for Paul, like the rest of the writers in the New Testament, they understand that faith in the gospel Knowledge of that truth, it has to lead to a godly life. And this is actually part of what it means to be saved. We talk about that a lot as Christians, you know, getting saved, being saved. Salvation is a godly life. It's freedom from our former way of life. It's obedience, right? I mean, obedience doesn't merit God's salvation. It's not how we get it, but it's a part of God's intentions in salvation, right? We're not just saved from something. We're not just saved from sin and death. We're saved to something. We're saved to godliness. We're saved to eternal life. We're saved from sin and to holiness. A godly behavior isn't how we're saved. It's why we're saved. And we tend to have a hole in this part of our theology as Christians. Salvation is like, it's like getting over the hump. It's like getting in, so to speak. But it tends to just end there. But it really doesn't. I mean, accepting Jesus, it's the beginning. This change in your beliefs and your worldview. I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm so loved by God and accepted by him. That should result in godly living in a changed life. Why? Because we behave like we believe. Now, you might have heard me make this illustration before, but I've said that in many ways, trusting Jesus is like trusting a surgeon, right? I mean, would you trust a surgeon with your very life on the operating table, but not listen to his advice after the operation? I mean, sure, yeah, okay, yeah, you know what you're doing when my very life is in your hands, when I'm anesthetized and unconscious and bleeding, I'll trust you with all that, but no heavy lifting for four weeks after? Well, you know, maybe, you know, I got to go to the gym. I got to stay in shape or cut down, watch my diet. Well, maybe. I, I, you know, we'll see about that, right? Doesn't, that doesn't really compute. Jesus, I depend on you utterly for my eternal destiny. I trust that you died and rose again to secure for me the life I was created for. 
But all the other things you said, be generous to the poor, not slandering, loving your neighbor, well, I'll take or leave that. It doesn't, it's so odd, right? As Christians, so, so you know, we believe all humankind is created in God's image, so deeply loved that God sent his son to die so he could redeem them. And yet, we'll slander other people, we'll mistreat them, use them or manipulate them for our own gain, be indifferent to the suffering of others. You believe that you're saved from sin and death by no merit of your own, that salvation's a free gift from God, and yet you act like you're somehow superior who don't believe like you do? That God saved you because you're so special or smart or righteous. You judge other people as if you need a savior any less than them. You believe you're forgiven for all your failures and sins, yet you hold grudges. You believe your real treasure is in heaven, yet you keep piling up wealth and possessions here on earth. You believe your marriage is a reflection of Christ and the church, yet your spouse takes a back seat to your career. It's inconsistent. It doesn't add up. I mean, think for a second of how many non-Christians, people who aren't believers, that you've met who, at least at the surface, reject Christianity because of what they see in other Christians. You believe in a God of love, that you're so deeply loved? I don't, I don't see a lot of loving others here. What joy, what forgiveness, what purity, what love, what community... You guys are just as angry, petty, selfish, and miserable as the rest of us. No thanks. The 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, a man's life is always more forcible than his speech. When men take stock of him, they reckon his deeds as dollars and his words as pennies. If his life and doctrine disagree... The mass of onlookers accept his practice and reject his preaching. Why? Because we know it. We know that we behave like we believe. So if you're like me and you don't always behave in a way that's consistent with what you say you believe, what's Paul's response? Something isn't right with your beliefs. And flip it around if you want to answer our question. If you want to change your behavior, you need to change your beliefs. You're believing a lie somewhere that's driving your behavior. If you want to change your behavior, you need to change your beliefs. And part of our struggle, I think, in changing our behavior is that we try to change it without changing our beliefs. We just address the symptom and not the disease. And our beliefs, they, they don't go deep enough to change our behavior. They don't, we don't really believe, right? Maybe in here we could all pass the theology test, right? But that knowledge and our experience living in it hasn't gone deep enough into who we are to change our behavior. And I'm talking deep, deep into the deepest depth of your heart deep. Like we see Paul say in this introduction in verse 1. How does Paul identify himself in verse 1? He says, Paul, a servant of God. But that's a wimpy English translation watering down the word underneath, which means slave. 
Paul recognizes that he is utterly God's, completely at his disposal. He has no rights to himself. He was bought with a price. He lives only for God. He doesn't say, Paul, born in Tarsus of the tribe of Benjamin, people of Gamaliel, and a Roman citizen. No. Paul, slave of God. All the rest of it he considers rubbish compared to knowing Christ. That's where the touch point, the cornerstone of his identity is in God. And that's the kind of depth I'm talking about here, where your first place you go to for who you are is found in God. And so what do we do about this? I've created a lot of problems for everybody here, including myself, right? Like good, good gravy. I mean, this is tough to listen to, right? And I've had to listen to it for weeks because I prepared this. And so what do we do? I mean, how do we let these beliefs penetrate so deeply into us that our behavior changes to the godly life that we're called to? How do we live consistent lives? And I want to suggest three ingredients that I can see here in our text today. Time, training, and hope. Time, training, and hope. And the first, for time, I want us to realize that godliness, that changing our beliefs to affect our behavior, takes time. Our beliefs, especially the deep ones, they take a long time to change. When I was in high school, I was in, in marching band, I was in jazz band, I was in percussion ensemble, and I studied under some very gifted but very broken men. And out of their brokenness, these men were terribly abusive to me and the rest of the band, verbally and physically. Right? If I made a mistake in marching band, it was typically met with a, a brutal verbal assault. And not just, you're a lousy drummer, but like, I hate you, you're an idiot, you stink. Like, really bad verbal abuse. Other times it was met with having to do push-ups in front of everybody or having to stand perfectly still at attention for several minutes, which is no easy feat when you've been carrying 30 pounds of drums in the hot sun for hours and mosquitoes are biting your legs and stuff like that. And so anything less than complete perfection was utter failure. It was black and white. And these teachers knew how to cut really deep and really tear us down and humiliate us in front of our peers. And so for four years, and at a rather formative age, too, I'd say, I learned a lie and believed a lie. The only way I could earn the approval of these men whom I deeply respected was to be perfect. So if I want to be loved and accepted, I need to be perfect. That was beaten into me, literally, for four years. Now, fast forward a bit, and when I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior at 25, did that just evaporate for me? I mean, suddenly, I know that I don't have to be perfect to be loved and accepted. And by the most wonderful, admirable, respectable person in the whole universe, God himself, 
He already loves me and accepts me as I am, not as I should be. I knew that one week into my walk with Jesus. But how did I behave? Do you think I might have still struggled with perfectionism? I might have freaked out a little bit if I made a tiny mistake. Now, by God's grace, I've grown. And so 16 years later, at 41, I'm in a different place than I was then. But do you think I might still struggle with that a little bit? Maybe I'll listen to this message, and I'll pick up on a couple times where I stammered, and I'll have to just let it go, Marciani. It's okay. You're loved. You're loved. Right? It's kind of funny now, but back then, that was devastating to me. Right? Why? Because I believed the lie. And this is just one area of my life, right? I mean, stretch it out to all my experiences, all the things I've learned in a distorted, fallen world among imperfect and broken people. What are your stories? What what are the lies that you've believed in your life? Maybe maybe you've struggled with your appearance or your weight in, in a world that places a premium on physical appearance. Right? And, and holds a nearly unattainable standard for what beauty is. And you're immersed in this day in and day out all your life. Peers make fun of you growing up. You're alone on prom night, whatever it is. So you lack confidence. You believe this lie that you're only loved if you look this certain way or you act this certain way. And so you turn to promiscuity or alcohol or being the funniest person in the room or being defensive and bitter, or whatever it is, to feel loved and in control. Well, I can tell you, just like anyone else here probably could, that God thinks you're beautiful. God desires to be with you. God desires to love you, to give you the full measure of life that he made you for. He doesn't look at you the way the world does. And this is God. Way more important and admirable and lovely and awesome than the cute guy or girl who made fun of you in high school? Does a lifetime of that hurt just disappear? And we can have moments or seasons where we gain great ground and experience tremendous growth and healing, but in the day to day to day to day, it's a long process. Because our beliefs come from deep places, and it takes time. It takes time. And you even see that in the text today. It's obvious that it takes time just because the letter exists, right? I mean, why didn't the church in Crete just snap right to godly living once they believed? Paul wouldn't have needed to write the letter. Clearly, it takes time. But we've also noted how Paul shows us that our behavior has to do with our faith, knowledge, and experience. Faith, knowledge, and experience, these things don't just materialize out of thin air, right? It takes training. It takes time. It takes training. Faith and knowledge work together to produce godliness, and it's a process. Our knowledge comes from receiving good teaching, from being trained. Now, this is why later in Titus, Paul's going to talk about setting up leaders in the church to teach sound doctrine. Learning the truth takes training. You listen to sermons, you go to Bible studies, you read your Bible, you talk with people in community who know the truth. And experiencing that truth is training too. You you position yourself in places where you can experience God. 
you pray, you listen, you worship. This is often what we call the spiritual disciplines. This is training. And our knowledge and experience is what's going to give our faith something to stand on. Because faith, you know, despite what you might hear, faith can't exist in isolation. It has to stand on something. You can't just have faith. It has to stand on something. If you meet somebody down on the street for the first time and they ask to borrow your car, you're probably going to say, you know what, I'm, you know, I don't feel comfortable with that. No thanks. Right? You don't have much faith in them. Why? Uh, you don't know anything about them. You haven't experienced anything with them. What if your best friend asks? Assuming your best friend has a good driving record. <laughs> right? Oh, you probably let them, right? Because you have faith in them. Why do you have faith in your friend and not the total stranger? Because your faith is standing on something. Oh, my best friend? Sure. I've experienced her trustworthiness firsthand. I know she's reliable. She's never been in an accident. She'll give me my car back. Your faith is standing on your knowledge and your experience of that person. And so our knowledge and experience builds our faith. Right? The more you know and experience God, the more faith you have in him. So the more likely you are to trust what he says. In other words, the more likely you are to obey him. And guess what happens when you obey? You experience him more. You grow in knowledge of him. Man, I, you know, I think I'm onto something here. Every time I trust God, you know, I, I grow. I have more joy. I, I, I think he might be actually telling me the truth. He might actually be out for the best in my life, right? And it just grows and builds in this spiral upward of building your faith, your knowledge, and your experience of God. It's a cycle that keeps building on itself. So it takes time. It takes training. And I, I tried so hard to find another T word. but I just like every thesaurus to find another T word. But I couldn't. So forgive me. It takes time. It takes training. That's right. I'm loved. So I wish I had another T, but it takes hope. Time, training, and hope. And I mean biblical hope here, too. Okay? Because in America, when we say hope, we think of it as like a kind of wish, right? Not so in Paul's writings. Not so in the Bible. For Paul, hope is an expectation. It's something you look forward to, some inevitability coming on over the horizon that you hope for. And getting our beliefs to change deep inside us takes hope. Why does it take hope? It takes hope because hope is our motivation. Our expectation, the thing we look forward to, is going to be the wind in our sails. It'll be what helps us persevere through all the time and training that it takes to get our beliefs deep enough to change our behavior, right? Somebody who quits smoking or loses a lot of weight or something like that, they did so. They were able to go through that because they had hope, right? They had the expectation of feeling better, the expectation of dramatically reducing health risks in any number of areas, expectation of longer, healthier life. That's what got them through it. And it's no different for us in godliness. It takes hope. But hope in the right place 
not some misplaced hope. And here I want to talk about, I, I tricked you at the beginning of the message. I've, I've been talking about one purpose here, but we never talked about Paul's other purpose in the introduction. And we've already discussed how Paul says he's an apostle to further the faith and knowledge of God's people that leads to godliness. But he says something else, doesn't he? At the beginning of verse 2, he says he's an apostle to instill the hope of eternal life. And it's hard to see again in, in English, but in the hope for eternal life, there's some grammar behind that that indicates it's a second parallel purpose uh, to Paul. And so he's God's servant for the purpose of filling others with the hope of eternal life. And he even adds two bits of information here to show why that hope is secure, because God cannot lie, and he promised it beforehand to the prophets, right? It's a secure hope. And so that's where his hope is placed. That's where our hope ought to be placed. Is your hope wrapped up in this life and not eternal life, the next life? And if that's the case, it's not going to be big enough to drive these beliefs down deep enough in your heart? Are your hopes and your dreams, your, your fantasies about the next life, or are you mostly thinking about this one? Oh, once I wait, you know, if I could just make a little more money, once I get a little more money, oh, once I get out of college, oh, once I get married, oh, once I get a house, oh, once I have kids, oh, once kids get out of the house, Oh, once I retire. Oh, once this vacation. Oh, once this, this car, this whatever, this job, this title. When was the last time you looked forward to heaven? Which is way better. Every joy you experience here on earth is just a shadow of the real joy that's coming. That's why it feels good, because it's pointing to something greater. When was the last time you looked forward to heaven? And that doesn't mean you disregard this life and that you shouldn't look forward to getting married or something like that. It means that your end game is the next life. That's where your greatest joy and hope are. Brothers and sisters, and I say this to myself, we need to raise the bar on our hope here spending too much time hoping for stuff down here. Let's raise the bar a little bit. We're delighting in the things of this world while something far better awaits us on the other side of eternity. We need a God-sized hope to fuel us in our effort to change our beliefs, get them deep in us so our behavior changes and we experience the real joy in life that God has given. C.S. Lewis said it really succinctly. He said, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. Right? You aim at heaven, if that's where your ultimate joy and hope is, you're going to have a fuller measure of joy and life and satisfaction and delight on earth. But if you're all wrapped up down here, you're going to lose both. Everything that you have here is going to be tainted and poisoned and distorted in some way. And you're, going to, you're not going to get anything. So do you want to change your behavior? Change your beliefs. And change them deeply. Because we behave like we believe. And if we believe the truth, that is life, that is godliness. 
If we believe lies, that's a distorted life. And this takes time, it takes training, and it takes hope to change our beliefs. So as we respond today, and let me, let me invite the, the band on up, <clears throat> um, I want to offer an encouragement and a suggestion for response. And first, the encouragement. Any good biblical theologian out there has probably noted by now that I haven't said anything about the Holy Spirit yet. And this is mostly because it's not, not right in the text, but I'd be remiss if I didn't note that the Holy Spirit, the God who dwells in us, is fully devoted to changing our beliefs and behavior. I mean, this is part and parcel of what he does. He reminds us of the truth. He encourages us. He, he convicts us. He changes us from the inside out. So don't walk away from here today thinking that godly living is merely a matter of human will. No, 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 no. It is empowered by the Holy Spirit and his work in your life. You can't even confess that Christ is Lord apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. So be encouraged, right? This is a great encouragement because God himself is literally all in with you on this, right? And he wants your holiness. He wants a full godly life for you more than you do. And he's God. All the resources of heaven and power of God are within you to change you from the inside to rebuke the lies, to receive the truth, to change your beliefs and change your behavior. And so as we respond, I just want us to pray. Let's pray and ask God to put his finger on the places in your life where you're living inconsistently, the places where you want to change your behavior, and show you what's underneath What's the belief that's driving that behavior from underneath? Right? So ask God, Lord, what's the lie I'm believing that's causing me to act this way? Now, just to give an example again, like I did from the, the marching band example, right? Lord, how come I flip out when I get a B plus? How come I become unglued when I make a little mistake? What's driving that, Lord? Right? And he'd reveal that lie to me. Brian, you still believe you have to be perfect to be loved. Lord, what's your truth? What's the truth in that place? Brian, you're already loved. I already love you. You already are accepted. You don't have to be perfect to be valued and loved. Right? That's the process I'm thinking here. So let's pray, and maybe there's some targeted training in your life over this next season to, to change your beliefs so your behavior can change and you can experience the full measure of blessing here on earth walking with Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are good. Thank you, God, that you are good, that you are trustworthy, that you hear our prayers now. And Lord, um, I ask for all of us here that you would help us uh, to identify, that you would bring fresh to the front of our mind the beliefs, the distorted beliefs or lies that we're holding on to that are driving sinful or ungodly behavior in our lives. So reveal that to us, Holy Spirit. 
and help us show us the truth in its place, Lord. What is the truth that falls in place of that lie that we're believing? And I pray we'd receive that, we would hear from you clearly, uh, receive your truth, Lord God, and that it would overflow into a godly life and the joy and blessing uh, that you called each one of us to. Uh, we love you and thank you in advance for your faithfulness and goodness to us. In your name we pray. Amen.